Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you please turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians? And we're going to be starting in chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed by those who sleep in de- about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing.
First Thessalonians is an, is kind of a unique has a unique place in Paul's letters. Very likely this is the first letter that Paul wrote that we still have. When Paul first came to the Thessalonians, he he came to Thessalonica after that wonderful experience in Philippi where he was beaten and thrown and put into a jail and got to pray and sing, have a little praise concert there in the jail and God set him free and it actually worked for the salvation of the the jailer and his family. But suffice it to say that Philippi did not really receive Paul well. But he had a better reception in, in Thessalonica and he was able to get a church started. And then he had moved on. The internal uh, evidence of this letter says that he wrote this letter from Athens. So still on that same missionary journey. And the occasion for it was Timothy had just brought him a report of how the church was doing. And he wanted to write back and say, things I'm just so glad to hear, this good report from Timothy. You know the manner of life that we, we passed on to you, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that you're still living in that way. So he's not really correcting an error like we'll see in so many other letters. He's not really confronting a false belief. This is still pretty quick after he established this church. So this is more kind of just like turbocharging. It's like, you already know what to do. This is just just checking base with you and encouraging you, just sending you a letter to tell you what to do. But things are going to be different in a couple ways. The things he's going to single out as instructions for the church are going to set the church apart from its pagan neighbors, they're going to be things that, that mark it out as different from its pagan neighbors. But they're also going to be things that the way we think about church in the 20th century, we probably also need to understand. Now, not saying that we, in the, did I say 20th century? Oh, my gosh. I said 21st century? Oh, thank God. I thought my age was showing. Um, but anyway. We, not that we are particularly sexually immoral, but we do, thanks to some misunderstandings in church history, we, we often get a wrong idea of what constitutes God's life and what God wants for us. Over and over again, we'll see God is profoundly concerned with how we live in this world, with our physical life. We talk about the story of the gospel as being the story of a loving creator who created a physical universe that he intended to inhabit with his creatures and fellowship with them, a material universe. And he said that was good. We damaged that through our own choices, but that did not invalidate God's plan. It just sent him on a plan to redeem the whole thing. Sometimes we get this idea that the physical world is somehow base or less. We get this idea from the classical Greeks. They divided the world into physical and ideal. And of course, physical was lesser and evil. And, you know, you couldn't have absolute truth or certainly not a, an absolute God couldn't be in that physical universe. One whole group of false teaching will build on this. The, the Gnostics 
will be very much matter is bad, evil, spirit good. So all the good stuff is the stuff of the spirit and everything with the flesh is evil. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that we are incarnate beings, that when God chose to share our existence, he became an incarnate being. And therefore, it matters very much what we do with our physical lives. So he starts out and he says, I I don't want you to live like the pagans. God called us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be different. We get all these different words around this concept of holiness. And sometimes when you hear them preached, you, you, you miss the, the sense of them. There's this, people preach it like there's something, some absolute quality called holiness. And, and that's not actually true. All holiness is, all sanctification is, is being different. And God calls us to be different the way he's different. And he says part of that's going to be how you live with your bodies, how you treat each other. And there's going to be a lot of, a lot of ways in which the world does not do this well. And he's calling the church not to be like that. <clears throat> One of the things you had at a lot of temples was temple prostitutes. That was a way of having worship in other religions. You just go in and sleep with somebody, and that was your that was your form of worship to usually the god of fertility, the god of love. Not to be like that. That's not, not how you guys are supposed to be. On the other hand, you had people who thought like everything to do with the body is evil. And so you should, you should make no provision for it. You should be absolutely celibate. This was one of the schools of Gnostics. It's like, the body is evil, have nothing to do with it. And that's also not what God calls us to do. He calls us to have a controlled life, but a blessed life. He, he knows we're physical beings. He intends to bless us that way. He's not saying it's evil. He's just saying there's proper boundaries for it and control yourself within them. Now, it's interesting that the, the Gnostics, they, one group of them had that, the body is so evil, so, you know, just put it to death. Don't, don't give in to it at all. And another group of Gnostics said, well, we know the body is evil and irredeemable. Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with it. So just go out and have a ball because it doesn't affect your eternal pure soul. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is... Oh, you are a soul. You have a soul, absolutely, but that soul dwells in a body, and it's one creature that God created with a spirit that gives you life. And it matters what you do with that physical body. So don't be like that. It says, and especially don't wrong your brothers and sisters in that, which works on, on several levels. When you are unrestrained in your sexuality, you damage your relationships with people around you. You can break up marriages. You can break up your own marriage. But also, even if you weren't directly affecting your brothers and sisters, because you are part of the church, if you're conducting yourself that way, you're, you're taking away what you give to the church. So on many levels, you can cheat your brothers and sisters by not watching how you, how you act in that way. And then the next embodied thing we're going to get to, right at the end of that, he's... And in English, 
your translation may or may not make it clear, but it says, about your love for one another. Now, he's just been talking about sex. He's not talking about sex here. When he gets to your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. But Paul is talking here about physically taking care of the needs of your brothers and sisters. He's talking about money and generosity here. When he talks about how you love your family, he's talking about how well you support each other. And he's like, you, in fact, you do love God's family all throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He's saying, you, you take good care of each other. You've, you've been sending money to take care of other churches in Macedonia, and I love that, and I want to see you doing that more and more. There's this sense like you've begun well, don't become weary in doing good. We know Paul will write that at other points. That, that's a hard teaching. It's really easy to be generous and take care of people one time. The, the longer it goes on, then you're like, I'm still doing what you called me to do, God. Yep. And he's like, don't, don't become weary in doing good. This is, this is what you were called to do. You know, Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10, sometimes we make it our closing scripture. You know, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to walk in. <coughs> when we're doing these things, we are doing what we were made to do. We're fulfilling part of our purpose. And again, this is a physically manifest, this is an incarnational type of thing. This is not just, I love you, go in peace. You know, James says, if you see your brother hungry and you say, oh, go, be filled, be well. What have you done? You've done nothing. So our love has to have an incarnational aspect. It has to have a physical aspect. And we're going to go from those two things, from sex and money, to death. What does this have in common with the other things? Because it's again talking about us as incarnated beings. It's going to talk about the resurrection. Because we don't look forward to, as much as greeting cards or cartoons may make it look, we don't look forward to sitting on a cloud playing a harp. That's not the Christian hope. Not even a Fender guitar. I mean, it's... Our hope is a renewed creation like this one that is embodied, it is ethereal. And so it's important. The resurrection is an important part of that. Now, this is the first letter he's written Like I say, this is the first letter we think that he wrote to a church. And one of the things that comes up, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed by those that have fallen asleep. In those first days after Christ's return to heaven, the church just lived in expectation of his his imminent return. And so they, a lot of them were, they were praying, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, they were in the church, but they were like, any day now. Well, 
even though this is Paul's first letter, this is still about 18 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And by now, people are like, not quite back yet. And talk about one of the things that begins to happen at this time is people from that first generation are dying. This is one of the reasons people begin writing down the things that we will receive as the Gospels. Because as people pass, they're like, okay, it may be a little bit before Jesus gets back. We better write this down so we don't lose it. But now you have the thing, if we believe in Christ and he's the hope and he's the resurrection, what does it mean that some of our friends have died? What, what's that? We believe that he is the resurrection. We believe God raised him. When Paul quotes in 14, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's kind of set apart as a creed. And we think that actually is one of the early creeds of the church. It's just that simple. We believe that... Uh, Jesus died and he rose again. He says, but if we believe that, then we also believe that God will bring back with him everybody we love that's fallen asleep. They're not going to miss out. It's not like if you, if you live until Jesus comes back, then you have that eternal life. But if you died before he came back, you, you, you didn't make it. It's not that at all. He says, look, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's interesting that he doesn't really talk much about the state of those people. The New Testament doesn't give us a lot of visions about, you know, you get to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, but you don't get a lot of description of what it's like to be dead before Christ come back because the main point is that he's coming back and he's going to raise these people with him, bring these people with him. And we get this picture the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. People have taken this and read this in a very particular way. You get this teaching, which is not a historical teaching of the church. It's only about 200 years old, but the rapture heard of that and the, the the rapture basically goes like this at some point christ will come and he'll take all the christians away and we'll all go off to heaven and earth will get really bad and then we'll come back again that's not what's going on here there's no we're coming back again it's so we meet christ and he's here this is talking about his return this is not a whoop, we get out of here and then come back this is we go out to meet him and the language here is pulled directly from the book of Daniel. Daniel was written at a time when Israel, because of its own shortcomings, had gone into exile and captivity in Babylon. And Daniel had risen in favor with the, the leaders there. Even when the Persians took over, he still had favor. So Daniel was kind of representing the, the people of God in exile. And he had a dream and he had a dream about four beasts, four nasty beasts, the, the fourth one, the worst of them all. But after the four beasts, he said he saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds and being seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days. That was a picture of the Messiah, which is why Jesus, he always referred to himself as the son of man. He was calling that. Well, this is exactly that same language. This is Paul saying, you remember that vision of Daniel? Well, when Jesus was seated at the right hand of the God, of God, when he came to God in the clouds, 
That's the sort of thing we're going to be in on. We're going to be part of that renewed messianic kingdom. This is not we're getting, we're getting the last helicopter out of Dodge. That's not what this is at all. This is the Messiah is coming back and his rule is being established. And oh, by the way, we meet him and we're his people with him. Why does that matter? Because it's a physical resurrection. This is not a, you know, there's some afterlife, the Elysian fields, Hades, whatever. It's like not like that. And that's why he says, I don't want you to be hopeless. Like the pagans are hopeless. We have a glorious, glorious future waiting for us because God is coming back. He says, now, we don't need to write to you about the times of all this because once you get to the 1980s, plenty of other people will write a bunch about the times of all this. Probably, I think I've probably talked before about the Christian classics like 88 Reasons the Lord Will Return in 1988. Um, Late Great Planet Earth. People are like, says, I don't need to write you about that because the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And when people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. And Paul is wonderful. And N.T. Wright has this great statement about Paul. He says, Paul will never use one picture where he can get five in. And it's true. He'll start a metaphor and he'll, he'll just keep adding to it. And he's like, destruction will come on them suddenly, like labor pains for a pregnant woman, and they won't escape. He's like, so something's coming, so it's kind of like a thief in the night. But it's also kind of like a pregnant lady. Pregnant ladies don't make great thieves in the night, I don't think, unless they're like stealing pickles or something. You know? Peanut butter. And then he says, but don't act like people that walk around the darkness. So we have, we got this thief, we got this pregnant lady, and now we got people that are kind of waking up in the middle of the night and mumbling things. He's like, I don't want you to be like that. You belong to the light. Don't act like people of the night. Don't. One of the pictures here, it doesn't really come across great in the translation, is, is if you wake up in the middle of the night, which some of us do as we get older, a lot of the time you just go back to bed. His whole picture is here. You've been awakened. You've been part of this new thing. Now don't be part of those people that just mumble a little bit and go back to sleep because a new day is dawning. He says we're not to be like that. We're not to be like the sleepy people. We're not. Now, we're also not like to be people at a party who are getting drunk. He's getting all these pictures in here. Because that's not who you are. Because, oh, by the way, God did not appoint you to suffer wrath, but to receive life. So don't act like that. Because God appointed us to, to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. And he died for us so that whether we are asleep or awake, we may live together with him. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. There is so much death in this world. There is so much misunderstanding of the role of people in this world that it can be very, very discouraging. You look around and you see senseless death. You look around and you see people 
who treat money like it is something to have the most of, that it's not a vehicle to make the world go on and to bless other people, but it's just something to get hoard of. They have that scarcity mindset. I better get mine because, you know, there's only so much going around, which is not the view of a, of a generous creator who gives abundantly beyond your needs. And you look around and you see the world and you see they're certainly not honoring God with the way they live their, their lives um, physically and sexually and creating damaged relationships. That can be very discouraging. So Paul finishes by saying, encourage one another, tell each other, this is what's happening. You've woken up. The dawn is coming. This is like the pregnancy. This is like the pangs of pregnancy. But something new is being birthed. Be awake. Be aware. You don't want it to creep up on you like a thief in the night. But don't worry too much about the times because if you're living like I just told you to live, you'll be fine. It says, we belong to the day, so let us be sober. Put on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The hope of salvation as a helmet. Our, our thoughts should always be guarded in that hope that we're looking forward to something better. That we're not just hoping to finish up good in heaven, play harps, but we're looking for a better resurrection of all of creation, that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself and that he will make all things new.